You're listening to True Vine Church Community Podcast. We hope this message sparks and sustains revival with your relationship with Jesus. For more information about True Vine, visit truevinephiladelphia.com. I love it when the call to worship fits hand in glove with the sermon, and today it does. I don't know, Colleen, if you got a hold of my notes beforehand, or maybe you read the passage. I have no other explanation other than the Lord must have led you. Uh, to highlight some of the same same stuff that I want to highlight today. But today we're continuing in our Story of the Bible series. We're going to be in Genesis 6 through 9. We're going to talk about the story of the flood. This is Noah and the ark. You may be familiar with this from uh, Fisher-Price toys or children's stories or uh, maybe you had Noah's ark bed sheets, stuff like that. Uh, That's possible, but I just want you to know that the story of Noah's Ark is not a children's story. You know, we kind of play up the cute aspects. Oh, look at the two tigers walking in together. Look at the two giraffes walking in together. I don't know, some story where the whole human race pretty much drowns. That's a weird thing for us to teach our children. Of course, we teach them that because it's in Scripture, but if we simply take the, the Noah's Ark story or the flood story and water it down, pun intended, for children. If we just do that, we're missing an awful lot of information, which is why I think it's important that we do cycle back sometimes and cover these foundational stories because I'm sure you heard this when you were a kid, but did you hear it as an adult? Have you considered this with the mind and the experiences and the wisdom that your adulthood has brought you, where you read this story and think, wow, this is way deeper than just a couple cute little animals paired up going into this wonderful boat that I can take into my bubble bath. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6 through 9 today. That's a lot of scripture. We're not going to read every single verse. I've highlighted mostly just a few verses in chapter 6 that are going to tell us the whole thing. I want to give you some background that leads into the story of the flood. I want to explain the flood, and then I want to use the New Testament to help us understand the flood in light of the cross of Jesus, okay? But before we get into that, I want to illustrate what's going on with the flood. In 2007, my wife and I were living in a one-bedroom apartment in a basement of a house in New City, New York. We were right outside of New York City, 30 minutes from the Bronx, we paid $1,100 a month for a one-bedroom apartment. That's a, uh, in the ballpark of what I pay for a whole house now. And um, we were living in this basement apartment, and it had a really large walk-in closet in the bedroom, just one bedroom. But it had a really large walk-in closet. I would say the closet was about the size of this drum uh, booth here. So kind of big for a closet. I had my dresser in it. I could get dressed in the closet, which for me is because I'm always tripping and trying to get dressed in the morning. So uh, it was a big closet. And one day we noticed in one of the corners some mold starting to form. And uh, so we cleaned it. We got kind of like cleaning wipes and sprayed it and we cleaned the mold off. And other than a little stain, it was as good as new. And about a month later, I noticed that it was back, and it looked like it was even worse. So I cleaned it off again, and I just put that in the back of my head that this might be a problem. (laughs) About a month later, it came back, and it was even worse, and so uh, we tried this special paint that you can put over, and that's supposed to keep it from doing that, and sure enough, it came back. 
We left our, uh, we left our closet door open with air conditioners going so it would kind of dehumidify. Maybe it was just too much moisture. And I don't know, if you've ever lived underground in a basement, it's hard to deal with moisture. It's hard to deal with, I mean, that's where you're prone to have these problems. So we tried cleaning it. We tried painting it. We tried dehumidifying it, and none of those were fixing it. And we actually moved out, and the, we knew the people that lived there after us. The landlord had to come in and actually tear down the whole wall, tear it down all the way down, wash and clean everything that was behind the wall, and rebuild it up from scratch. It didn't matter how many little quick fixes we tried. We were not able to deal with this infestation. It had to be torn down and totally rebuilt. And that is essentially what God is doing with the flood in Genesis 6. Sin has so infested and infected the world that God knows this is not something that can be fixed with a quick fix. This is not something that a little uh, spackle job or paint job is going to fix. God decides to tear it all down. It is so corrupted by sin, God decides to tear it all down. He's going to preserve just a remnant in Noah and his family, eight people in total, and he's going to rebuild the world from scratch from this family. That's essentially an overview of the story of Now, I want to introduce you to a cycle or a pattern or a process that repeats itself throughout the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and I'm simplifying this as much as I possibly can, so I've got it down to just three steps, although there's probably more than three steps, but I just have it down to the three basic steps of this cycle or pattern or process that you're going to see repeated throughout Scripture. I'm going to revisit this again in two weeks when we talk about the Tower of Babel. But the, the, the cycle starts in Genesis 1.28 when God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Can you repeat that after me? Be fruitful and multiply. And he's saying that to them. And when he says it to them, he means like have babies and populate the earth. I mean, that's what be fruitful and multiply means in that context for Adam and Eve is populate the earth. So This is the cycle. The cycle from Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is new world, rebellion, and judgment. If you can put that slide up for me. New world, rebellion, and judgment. The new world starts in Genesis 1. God creates the heavens of the earth out of nothing through his son. We have this brand new world. He creates Adam and Eve. It's just, it's perfect. It's described as paradise. They live together in a garden, in unity with one another, no shame, no bickering, no arguments. They meet with God on a regular basis. It's, it's, it's exactly what you would want. But as you know, because John Eric covered this uh, last week, they rebel, they sin, they listen to the deceitful lies of this serpent. They sin, they rebel against God, and God has to judge that rebellion. And how does God judge the rebellion? He removes Adam and Eve from this garden paradise, and he puts them outside of the garden, and the cycle starts over. Now Adam and Eve are in a new world. Outside, this is a new world outside of the garden. It's not necessarily new, but it's new to them. 
They've never lived outside of paradise before. They've never lived separated from God before. They've never had to uh, have pain during childbirth and work the ground until they sweat. They've never had to experience To them, this is a new world, but it is to them a fresh start. They have some boys, Cain and Abel, and this whole process starts over. They have some boys, Cain and Abel, and the cycle starts over again. You might know this story from uh, Genesis 5, Cain and Abel. Uh, one of them works the ground. The other raises animals. Cain kills his brother Abel. This is the first murder recorded in Scripture. I didn't realize this until this week. We did not make it one generation before there was a murder. We did not make it one generation without parents grieving the loss of a child prematurely. That's not something that came along after dozens of generations. The very first parents in the Bible, Adam and Eve, lost a child when their other child murdered them. I mean, this is, this is not a new development. This goes back to the very first. As soon as it was possible for parents to lose a child, as soon as it was possible for brother to murder brother, we did it. We didn't figure that out as time went on. We started brother murdering brother. As soon as it was humanly possible for a, for a sibling to kill a sibling, they did it. That's how fast we fell off. It didn't escalate to that. It started with that. And so you have Adam and Eve. I didn't realize that till this week. Adam and Eve would have had to grieve the loss of a child prematurely, would have had to deal with that loss. So... This story, uh, it kind of illustrates how bad things get. Cain kills Abel in Genesis 4, 1 through 16. In Genesis 6, 1 through 4, we find out about this strange group of beings called the Nephilim. I'm not going to spend too much time on them. How many of you have heard of the Nephilim before? Oh, wow, way more than I thought. You guys are into some weird stuff, I'm sure. Okay. In Genesis 6, it talks about this scenario. It says the sons of God, which is a way of referring to angels, found the daughters of men, women, to be attractive, and they married them, and they had sex with them, and they had children with them, and that, that group is called the Nephilim, and it produced essentially a group of like warrior giants. It's a weird story. I just, it's very weird. Um, so to summarize it, rebellious angels, which we now know as demons, rebelled against God, slept with women, created Nephilim. Some people think that's where Goliath came from. Um, Nimrod, the guy that built the Tower of Babel, which we'll look at in two weeks, sounds like he was a Nephilim. Uh, the Nephilim somehow exist both before and after the flood. Um, so perhaps this continued after God washed the earth with the flood. But this is kind of a wild concept. I'm just going to describe it this way. It is sexual immorality that is so bad that it leads to demonic possession. So let's just summarize. After Adam and Eve are removed from the garden and get a fresh start, we have brother killing brother, 
We have sexual immorality that's so bad it's leading to demonic possession. And then we also have this man named Lamech. This is in Genesis 4, 19 through 24. Lamech is the first man in the Bible to have two wives. He is the one that introduces polygamy to the world. He, in fact, begins to treat his wives not like partners or equals, but like property. He boasts at one point in Genesis chapter 4, Lamech boasts to his wives, I killed a man for just touching me. I killed a boy for harming me. That's the song he sings to his wives. I sing like Barry White to my wife. It's not very good. This guy is boasting to his multiple wives about how someone harmed him and he overreacted by murdering them. And he says it was a boy, whatever that means. We don't really know what happened there. So this is Lamech. So this is what we have. We start with a garden. That's new world. Adam and Eve rebel. That leads to judgment. They're evicted from the new world, uh, from the garden. And then they leave the garden and start with a new world. Here we go with rebellion again. The rebellion is murderous. The rebellion is sexual. The rebellion is uh, violating the image of God by taking a spouse as property. Here we are already, just one generation out. It didn't take generations upon generation. We, we picked right up where we left off in the garden by rebelling. So new world, rebellion. So what's the next step? Judgment. And what is the judgment that God brings on this rebellion? A flood. So Adam and Eve removed from the garden. This time God says, well, there's no garden to remove you, remove you from. I'm going to flood the earth. In fact, it's summarized God's uh, attitude and God's perspective on the corruption of the earth is, gen- is summarized in Genesis 6, 5 through 9. This will be on the screen for you. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of mankind was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. Not a lot of wiggle room for good stuff. Every thought was only evil continually. That's pretty thorough. So the Lord was sorry that he had made mankind on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The New Living Translation says that he was brokenhearted. The Hebrew word there for being sorry is that God sighed. God looked at the earth at this point after brother was killing brother, after the sexual immorality that was leading to demon possession, after men were taking multiple wives as property. God looked at that and he went, he sighed. That was the, John Eric did such a great job last week talking about the emotions that God felt when Adam and Eve rebelled. This is the emotion that God feels when he sees the post-garden world. So how society is developing now that they've been removed from the garden. He looks at it and he sighs. He is grieved. He's brokenhearted. Verse 7 of Genesis 6, Then the Lord said, I will wipe out mankind whom I have created from the face of the land, mankind and animals as well, and crawling things and the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. 
Noah walked with God. And I, so we see that in the midst of this godless society, sinful society, there is one man who's walking with God, it's Noah. Verses 11 and 12 summarize again the situation. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. There, at this point, there has not been a generation that is not touched by murder. Talk about like a generational issue that continues from one generation to the next generation. There has not yet been a generation where they didn't have a family member murdered. The earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for humanity had corrupted its way upon the earth. I don't know if you notice, there's a word in there that's continually repeated. Corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. The earth was corruptible, it was corrupt, and it was being corrupted. It was, it was getting very bad, very fast. And that's the situation that is taking place on the earth. So again, here's the cycle. New world, rebellion, judgment. Adam and Eve have come out of the garden into this new world. We've seen the rebellion. Now we anticipate the judgment. What's the judgment? The judgment is going to be a flood. So let's get into the story of the flood. We're going to continue in Genesis chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. This is where God lays out his plan to Noah. Then God said to Noah, The end of humanity has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of people, and behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood, you shall make the ark with compartments and cover it inside and out with pitch. God is going to essentially destroy the earth, but it's important for us to acknowledge that before God destroys the earth, we've already done it. He did not destroy a good world that was full of peace and joy and harmony. We destroyed that, right? We destroyed that, not him. He's destroying a world that's full of murder and immorality and sin. He's destroying that. So essentially, human beings built a society that was full of injustice and violence and iniquity. We built that system, and God tore it down. Does that make sense? That's, a sen that's basically what we're capable of, building the least fair, least just systems that's what we're capable of, and God tears them down. There's only, in my opinion, one group of people now who has the wisdom to build fair systems. That hypothetically should be the church if we rely on biblical wisdom and the power of the Holy Spirit. I think we're probably still a long way from that, but I hope we're getting closer than we've been in the past. So this is God's plan and Noah's assignment. God says, I'm going to wipe out mankind Noah, your job is to build a boat, and I'm going to save your family. It's Noah and his wife. Noah has three sons, and each of those sons has a wife, eight people in total that are going to be saved during this flood. Mankind destroyed God's creation before God ever did, and God is going to restore, restore creation. Noah spent, I, I had to look this week, Noah spent between 50 and 120 years building the ark. It's hard to tell from the passage, 
but between 50 and 120 years building the ark. So he didn't build it overnight. This is not a little craft project. Obviously, he had no power tools. The ark was about one and a half times the size of a football field, so pretty big. Um, and it had three stories to it, so pretty tall. I mean, it's gigantic. He built this ark. Um, once it was done being built, there was a seven-day period where the animals were collected onto the ark. The animals were collected, for the most part, two by two, one male and one female of each type of animal. Really quickly, if, if you're reading this, if you're reading the story of Noah's Ark through modern 2023 eye glasses, this feels almost like impossible that you got one of every kind of species on the ark. The way that we categorize created beings through taxonomy, we have kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Thank you to my seventh grade science teacher for drilling that into my head. Kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Based on this passage, we don't necessarily need to believe that Noah had one of every species. Noah didn't have to. You know how many stinking house cats there are? We don't know. It doesn't mean he had one of every kind of cat. It just means he had two cats. And that over time, those two cats can uh, have adapted based on where they've lived. It doesn't mean he had two of every kind of dog. It just means he had two dogs. I mean, it doesn't actually say this in the passage. I'm just telling you, you don't have to have this narrow view. He, he just needed to satisfy the passage. All he needed to have was two dogs who since then have adapted based on their climate and where they've lived. Does that make sense? So it says he had a dove, he had a raven. Did he have every species of raven and every species of dove? We don't know that. We just know they had doves and ravens. Maybe after the flood, those doves and ravens have adapted based on where they've lived on the earth. So he gets two of every kind of animal, they live on there, and the flood, the waters become, after the seven-day loading period, this is about as fast as every plane I've ever been on, seven days. Uh, after the seven-day loading period, there's 40 days of rain. There's 150 days of floating. It says that the flood floods the earth 25 feet above the, the mountaintops. So think of the mountaintops. Uh, I mean, the, the ark comes to rest in a mountain that is in present-day Turkey. So at the minimum, it's 25 feet above a mount, the highest mountain in Turkey. The entire flood process, Noah is on the ark for a year and 10 days. I know you thought it was 40 days. No, that's just how long it rained. Then they had to drain the tub. It took a, another, basically, 11 months just to drain the earth to where they could get off the boat. So Noah is locked up in this boat with his family for over a year. Having never been isolated in my home with no one but my family for an extended period of time, no, just kidding, I, I felt like COVID was, I was Noah. The only righteous man and locked in this house with my family. I mean, he's basically quarantined there because of the sickness of sin that's contagious. He's basically quarantined on this boat for a, a year and 10 days. 
This is a long time, right? That is a long time. Think about how long it took Noah to fulfill his calling, 50 to 120 years of building. There's, by the way, at this point in the Bible, there's nothing ever called rain has happened. The earth is watered from the springs underneath, it, it says earlier. So I'm not saying this is the first time it rained. We don't know that for sure, but I'm saying this is the first time rain is mentioned in the Bible. Who knows if Noah even knew what rain was? It's going to flood? What's a flood? What's rain? Well, I'll just labor for five or 12 decades to build a boat because this thing called rain might come. And while Noah built the boat, he preached righteousness also. He, he preached and built as he went. So they spend about a year on the boat. They get off the boat, and what do they step out to? A new world. Not new down to its studs, but it's new to them, right? This is a new world. God has totally wiped out the world they knew. They step out to a new world. There's no sin. There's no murder. There's no immorality. There's no wickedness. Right? There's no people. There's not even that many animals. Any plant life that existed is pretty new, right? Noah steps out into the new world, and I hate to ruin the story, but you know what happens next. Eventually, Noah plants a vineyard. He makes some wine from the vines. He gets drunk and ends up walking around naked. His own kids see him. We, we don't even make it one generation. The same guy, and I love Noah, and Noah is an example of righteousness from the Bible, but even the best examples of righteousness from the Bible still have flaws other than Jesus. David sinned. We love David, but David sinned. Noah, we love Noah, but Noah sinned. Abraham, we love Abraham, but he sinned. Paul had sinned. It actually makes me appreciate Jesus a lot more because all the suffering he experienced never led him to sin. Noah gets drunk. He ends up walking around naked. His sons see him. The same man that preached righteousness and built this boat, then he falls into sin, and he reintroduces sin back into the world. We cannot help ourselves. We, we as human beings cannot help ourselves. Let me say it this way. We can't help ourselves. Self-help is like doing surgery on yourself. You know, like you're the sick one. How are you trying to heal yourself? We need outside help. And the outside help that we need is from God, ultimately. Sometimes he uses other people. Sometimes he intervenes directly. So there's a new world the earth is covered uh, with water again. Do you remember the last time the earth was covered with water? Genesis 1. So we go right back to that. We, this really is a full circle starting back over. Do you know what God says to Noah and his family when they walk off the ark? This is Genesis 9, verse 1. I love this. This is what God says to Noah when he gets off the ark. Be fruitful and multiply. I mean, God covers the earth with water again, just like in Genesis 1. 
God starts with a family again, just like in Genesis 1. God says, be fruitful and multiply again, just like in Genesis 1. We are starting over. And what we're going to find, not necessarily today, but if you continue reading the story, is we screw it up again. We introduce sin again, which we will pick up in two weeks when we get to the story of the Tower of Babel, which continues this cycle of new world, rebellion, and judgment. Let me just say, this is, a, this is part of the pattern. In Genesis 2 and 3, God starts with a family, Adam and Eve. He wipes the earth clean. He starts over in Genesis 9 with a family, Noah and his family. He judges again the Tower of Babel and disperses all the people of the earth, and he picks Abraham, and he starts with a family again. Every time God starts over, he starts with a family. That, that actually picks up even in the Gospels with Mary and Joseph and Jesus. And even, who is John the Baptist? Jesus' cousin. He, it does seem like God likes to work in families. It does seem like that that's part of the pattern and the process that he uses. Now, the story of the flood is a theme that's touched on throughout the Old Testament, but it's also hit on in the New Testament. So I want to get our lessons about the flood from uh, the New Testament um, in a couple places. So you might read this story and wonder, did the flood, is this real? Did this really happen? So the New Testament treats the flood like a historical event, not a myth, not a fairy tale, not a bedtime story. The book of Luke includes Noah in a genealogy, okay, in a family tree. I just want to remind you, Luke was a doctor. Matthew was an accountant. Luke was a doctor. This doctor's not weaving fairy tales into his historical accounts. Everything Luke wrote, like Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts as his, history, not, not myth, not fable. He wrote them as history. So Noah is included as a literal historical figure in Luke, and the book of 1 Chronicles also includes Noah in a genealogy. So the fact that Noah is included in genealogies tells me, well, the, the writers of the Bible saw this as a historical event. So if I don't see it as a historical event, I'm in conflict with the writers of the Bible. Does that make sense? If they saw it as a historical event, I should trust them and also see it as a historical event, not a parable uh, or a symbolic story. This is how seriously God treats sin, that he would flood the entire earth and start over. This is how God feels about sin. He does not play with it. He judges it. He condemns it, which is why we want to stand far away from it. You ever joked around, someone says something stupid, and you, step up, you take a step back because you don't want to get struck by lightning? Mostly we just do that as a joke. I don't know anyone that that's actually happened to. That's how to treat sin. You want to stay away from it because God is going to judge it at some point. This is how seriously God treats sin. 
Jesus said it this way, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now Jesus is using hyperbole there because none of the disciples took him literally, but they understood the, the, under, the, the idea was take sin seriously. It is like cancer to your soul. It infects, it poisons, it kills. So this is how seriously God treats sin. It says that he sighed over it. He was grieved by it. I, just, I think that if our hearts felt the same way about sin that God's heart feels, we would understand why he hates it so much and why he must judge it to preserve us. He must judge sin in order to preserve us because we are experts at how to multiply sin. And we take other people down with us in the process and we harm other people with sin. Matthew 24, this is the third thing that we can learn about the, the flood. Matthew 24 says that the culture of the earth will resemble the days of Noah prior to Jesus' return. I'm going to read this. Uh, this will be on the screen as well. It's just three verses in Matthew 24. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. I mean, they had no idea this flood was coming. Despite the fact that Noah was preaching for decades, God is going to judge us. They did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. The culture that precedes Jesus' return is going to resemble the culture that Noah lived in. Just wickedness and immorality and violence. It's just going to flood the earth. And despite the warnings, people are not going to respond to the warnings. I mean, there'll be some that will, of course, respond to the warnings, and that's why it's worth us giving warnings, because we will save some in the process. But there will be many who, despite hearing their whole life, Jesus will return, will still be shocked when he does return. So this is uh, Matthew 24. 2 Peter 2, 5 through 9. You might be getting a little scared now. I don't. <laughs> 2 Peter 2, 5 through 9 assures us that despite the judgment, despite the judging of sin, God knows how to preserve us. This is 2 Peter 2, verses 5 and 9. For if God did not spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from a trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. See, I love this about God, that he judges, at the same time that he's judging sin, he's preserving the righteous. When he flooded the earth, he judged sin, but he also saved Noah through this ark, right? This also goes on uh, Lot. Lot was Noah's nephew. He was in the town of Sodom and Gomorrah. God went and got Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah before God rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. The Israelites, when they were slaves in Egypt, and there was all those uh, plagues from the prince of Egypt, all those plagues, God had his people go live in a separate town called Goshen. And whatever, whatever there was gnats or flies or darkness or disease, their town was safe, Goshen. God knows how to preserve his people even when he's judging the world. He's always done it. 
And all of those, the, the ark, Goshen, that town, this is what I love about those pictures. All of those are tips, hints, leading to Jesus. Jesus is our ark. Everyone that was in the ark was saved. Jesus is to us what the ark was to them. Jesus is to us what the city of Goshen was to the Israelites. He is the safe place. If you can just get in this ark, you're safe. If you can just get in this city of Goshen, you're safe. If you can just get in Jesus, you're safe. One of the Greek words that's used to refer to the ministry of Jesus is hilasterion. It means he is a covering, almost like an umbrella. That like when God decides to judge the earth at the end of the age, when God does that, we will be under Jesus' covering. We will be under his protective umbrella, so to speak. It's an atonement cover. So the ark foreshadows salvation in Jesus. Jesus is our ark. Hebrews 11, verse 7, says that Noah's obedient response to God is an illustration of faith, and it leads to the salvation of his entire family, his household. I once heard someone preach, well, they were sharing about how they were actually complaining to God. God, Noah preached for 50 years, 100 years, and all he saved was his family. And God said, yeah, his whole family was saved. That alone would make it worthwhile, right? That... that the laboring and the working and the faithfulness, if it brings about even just the result that the fa your family is saved, is it not worth it? That his whole family was saved. So his obedience, while it took decades, while it cost him much, while it was difficult, it did result that his family made it through. If, if, if we simply did that alone... We would change society. We would, we would change culture. If we just simply all had an impact on our immediate families, we would make a difference. Finally, this is from Genesis 1, Genesis 9, John 15. We must also be fruitful and multiply. Now, when God said to Adam and Eve and Noah and his sons, be fruitful and multiply, he meant like have babies and fill the earth. But in John 15, it says, if you abide in me, you will bear fruit. And that is not necessarily about cranking out kids. That is about making disciples. Now, I found cranking out kids is an effective tool for making disciples in my life, but that is not for everyone. I have three little tiny disciples that follow me around and say, teach me, teach me. No, no, none of them have ever said that. Um, but... This is not necessarily, when, when G, uh, Jesus says in John 15, multiply, or be, bear fruit, he's not necessarily talking about having babies, he's talking about making disciples. He's talking about sharing the gospel and teaching people to obey everything that Jesus taught. So just like Adam and Eve had a mandate to multiply, just like Noah had a mandate to multiply, we have a mandate to multiply through the making of disciples of Jesus. When I think about this story, it does lead me, uh, as I said earlier, and, and Colleen hit on this during the call to worship, 
it does lead me to consider the weightiness of sin, that God would start over, that sin, sin in the world would even cause God to just <sighs> to sigh, to be grieved. Did you know God can be grieved? That an all-knowing being who has control, you would think if you and I had control over everything, wouldn't the first thing you would do is make sure you never feel pain and disappointment, right? This is how humble God is. That even though he could just turn the dial to say, never disappoint me, never grieve me, he still allows his creation to grieve him. That's how humble he is. He, he in, in almost welcomes pain simply to be in relationship with us, right? So when I think about this story, I think about the severity of sin, but I also think about the extreme love that God must have had because he could have wiped Noah and his family out, but he didn't. He loves us so much that he saved a little sliver of a remnant to start over. And then when they screwed it up, he provided another covenant through Abraham's family. And when Abraham's family screwed it up, he said, I will take matters into my own hands. I will become a human in Jesus, and I will live perfectly because you have not lived perfectly. And of course, you know what we did to Jesus. The one who could save us, we killed. And the Apostle Paul gives us communion as a way to commemorate the fact that Jesus died for us. When Paul instructs us to take communion, he tells us to uh, inspect ourselves. He tells us that every time we take communion, we are proclaiming Jesus' death until he returns. Paul tells us that the cup that we drink is the blood of the new covenant, that the bread that we eat is Jesus' body. So this morning we're going to take communion. Um, I'm going to ask Dorian James if he'll come up and join me on stage, and he's going to lead us in our communion declarations. And